Welcome to the Central Community Church Podcast. We exist to be authentic followers of Jesus, leading others to follow Him by loving God, loving people, and serving our world. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command of you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord had commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it before Pharaoh that it may become a servant. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up all their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood, and there shall be blood throughout the, all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink the water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not even take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs so that they that shall come into your house and into your bedroom and onto your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. 
The frog shall come up on you and your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, the canals, and over the pools, and make frogs come up out of the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and your servants and for your people, that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs, as he had agreed with the Pharaoh. And the Lord did accordingly with the words of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, so that it may become gnats in all of the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand and his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce the gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Well, it's summer, and what, what feels more refreshing to the spirit than a bunch of plagues starting to hit Egypt, hey? Uh, I, I'm going to preach the next two sermons, then I'll be off for a little while, and just so you know, I'm going to preach the first nine plagues. So I, I'm, I'm kind of ending a run here myself, just kind of focused in on this, and at first glance, you're like, what in the world is going on here? This is intense, this is dark, this is difficult to, to wrestle with. Um, well, we're going to plunge in. And I want us to see some encouraging things and some, some, some elements first that, that have kind of been threads throughout this story so far. And then we'll start to look at the plagues themselves. Right off the top, Exodus 7, verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Just picking up where we left off last week, um, Moses finally goes and approaches Pharaoh. He's had a ton of excuses, and he goes to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh just doubles down and makes life more difficult for the Israelites enslaved in Egypt. And then the Israelites say, why have you done this? You're not helping. And then we see at the end of chapter 6 that Moses essentially says to God yet again, how will Pharaoh listen to me? Like, right, what's going on? This is so hard. And so we pick it up there where things have just not gone well. Moses has not um, loved what God has been instructing him to do, and things haven't gone well so far. So God declares at the beginning of chapter 7, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. Literally in the original, I have made you God to Pharaoh. 
It's a strong statement that God is making. Here's why. Egyptian belief was that the pharaohs were incarnations of gods. So Pharaoh himself was a god. So by making Moses God to Pharaoh, God was putting Pharaoh in his place. So we need to understand by reading this text, obviously, that there's no other God but God alone. But what it means that God was making Moses God to Pharaoh is that God gave Moses his divine authority. God himself was speaking and acting through Moses. It was God himself. Then Aaron spoke for Moses just as Moses spoke for God. We see this over and over in the Old Testament. Prophets rising up and God speaking through the prophets. Then we see in Jesus that God spoke through the greatest prophet of all. The book of Hebrews begins this way towards the back of your Bible. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And then Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, is seated on his throne. He gifts the Holy Spirit to the church to be their helper and to to guide them. And the church's task now is to announce God's word to God's people. This is what the church does. The words of the prophets and the apostles and Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself, the gospel message itself are contained in the Bible. And it's our responsibility and privilege to announce them to the world. This is certainly what the preacher does, but it's also what the whole congregation does as well. Marcus Brownson, a Philadelphia preacher in the early 20th century, said, As it was in the church of the early days, in the early church of Christianity, when men, women, and even children went everywhere talking of the Savior and of redeeming love, so should it be today. Evangelism is the office of all believers. Every believer in Christ holds an office in the church, has a role, and the office of witness, it's the office of witnessing for Christ, and it's the highest, most honorable, most useful office in the world. It's the office of all believers. The carrying on, the proclamation of God's Word. In this way, we're Jesus to people in the same way Moses was God to Pharaoh. See, as Christians, we take Jesus into the world. And as we take Jesus into the world, it may be the only interaction that some family, friends, or co-workers have with Jesus. And their understanding of Christianity depends on our telling them. It's the same with Moses and Pharaoh. In the same way, we're Jesus to the people who don't know Christ as Moses was God to Pharaoh, proclaiming these words. Remember back in in Exodus chapter 3 where God says, "I." he's, he's heard the cries and he's seen the affliction of his people. And so he says, I will come down and I will save them. I will rescue them. And he goes on to say, Moses, I'm sending you. That whole I'm sending you piece is, is really helpful for us to see in this way. That it's not because God needed Moses 
to go, right? I mean, we all know that. God could have gone so many other ways. He could have simply spoken and Pharaoh heard it and trembled and obeyed. He didn't need, God doesn't need Moses and God doesn't need us. So could it not be, and is it not possible here that this I'm sending you has a lot more to do with you and your relationship with God than the recipient? See, God doesn't need us, but he invites us along. And how amazing is that for us? Here's where it gets tricky. See, see what, the, what, what the quote said that, that I just spoke was that everyone in the church is an evangelist. Everybody proclaims the truth. We see in Ephesians chapter 4 that there's the gifted evangelist, means they nail it. They do it really, really well. But it also means that those with the gift of evangelism are simply training the church to do it well as well. Because God gives those gifted in these offices and, and with these gifts, like evangelism, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Meaning it's not just the three evangelists who are like uber evangelists that do the work of evangelism. No, they help us all along in doing it well. But many of us don't operate that way. Maybe it's because we don't know a believer. Maybe we've so cloistered ourselves, so protected ourselves from the outside world that we don't even really have relationship with non-believers. That can keep us from speaking God's word, announcing God's word to the world. Or perhaps, even worse, we don't even care about non-believers. The reason we don't speak is because we don't care. It's not on our radar. We're going about our lives, and concern for the salvation of the lost is not a priority in our lives, and therefore we don't proclaim Or we never put the love of Christ on display. Love of God and love of neighbor for a watching world to see and never share the gospel with them. Listen, not only is that disobedient and disobedient to the clear teaching of Scripture, what I would say also is that you're missing out on a great gift. You're missing out on what I consider one of the most invigorating aspects of our faith. And God desires and has designed to bring you along with him as he goes about saving sinners. So let me give you an example of that. There's a woman in our church um, who led uh, another woman to the Lord. She, she came out to our women's group and gave her life to Jesus on one of those mornings. And uh, the backstory of that is that um, this, was this, this woman in our church had the same hairdresser for, for years, probably the last 15 years, 20 years. And uh, they would, because she's a follower of Jesus, she took Jesus where she would go, including the hair salon and the hairdresser's chair. And, and they would talk. And so instead of watching, reading trash magazines, she would talk about her faith in Jesus to her hairstylist. And eventually, her heart softened. And she came to church. She gave her life to the Lord. And you know how invigorating that was for the woman in our church? Because she shared Jesus. I, I was actually chatting with her between services, and she said, I missed an opportunity years ago, and I prayed to God, give me another chance. Give me another opportunity to share the excellencies of Christ with someone. I blew it this other time. And she said, and that was my chance. 
God brought me another opportunity, and I'm confident he'll bring me more. And so as she sat in that chair, she shared Jesus, and it changed this woman's life. And her heart went from stone to a heart of flesh. She went from non-believer to believer, from not knowing Christ to being saved by Christ. But it doesn't stop there. This woman who gave her life to Jesus, who's a hairstylist, had another woman in her chair, and now she's talking to this woman in her chair about the fact that she gave her life to Jesus, and the woman in the chair just started to cry and said to her, I've been praying for 30 years that you would give your life to Jesus. So who else is encouraged by the sharing of the gospel? A saint who had given herself to prayer for 30 years and says, yes, God, you answer those kinds of prayers. So the woman who's the hairstylist's life has changed. The woman in the chair who, who shared Jesus is absolutely blown away by the grace of God and using a sinner to lead someone to repentance. And a, a saintly woman who prayed for decades for the salvation of a woman she cared about was blown away by God. And I share it with you. And I'm emotional, so I'm teary-eyed. But I see some of you are too, so just, just own it. I'm not the only one, all right? I get, I get called the crying pastor from time to time. It's like, ah. And then I look back at them, sorry I care so much. <laughs> um, but here you are encouraged. Here I am encouraged. This is what happens. But for many of us, we won't even go there to our detriment. God doesn't need us. But he chooses to use us, and we're called to be faithful in it. And then he blows the doors open on people's hearts. And people get saved. And Christians get absolutely floored again by the grace of God and are so grateful that he would use wretches like us to build his church. Please, Allow this truth of we get to be Jesus, not because Jesus needs us, because he gives us the privilege. We get to be Jesus to people. Don't pass it up. It's, to the only, it's only to the detriment of your faith and those around you. Secondly, the church needs the wisdom and faithfulness of mature believers. Let's pick it up in verse 2. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. Look at verse 6. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Well, that's new. I mean, have you been following the story so far? Wait, where are like the five verses about Moses' like bunch of excuses? I'm not a good talker, right? I'm nervous. Send somebody else, right? Not me. He's not going to listen. But for once, here's something new. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses used to be full of excuses at every turn. But now he's reached the point of genuine submission to God's will. And this should be the Christian goal, the goal of every Christian. Immediate, instinctive, obedient response to doing God's will. And we see that. This is new for Moses. Now, can we look at verse 7 together? 
Now Moses was 80 years old. Aaron was 83. Moses just got it. Like that's, that's the weeks, if you've been here for a number of weeks on Sundays, like half of what we're saying is Moses is full of excuses. He's one, he's not faithful. He's got a bunch of whatever. He's listening to God. He's submitting to his will. He's obeying his commands. He's just doing it. And he was 80 years old. Aaron was 83. Listen, faithful obedience never retires. I was in... Um, I was at Stillwood Camp probably a couple years ago now. I was studying at a study prayer day there, and I slipped into the dining hall at lunchtime. And uh, um, this older couple were there, a retired couple, and they just started chatting with me, and they were very warm, and they were very encouraging. I really enjoyed coming across them. And at one point, the gentleman said, you know, I have business cards, and they say, retired to serve on them. I give them out to people, retired to serve. That's, that's who I am. That's, that's why we're here. Like, you need us to take out the trash? We'll take out the trash. Do you need us to, to greet the guests as they arrive? We'll do that. Do you need us to, to step aside and, and, and pray with somebody who could use prayer? We're, we're here. And, and they just wove serving Stillwood into part of what they were doing with their retired life. And I was so blown away by that. Retired to serve. Has the job come to a conclusion? Yes, has faithfulness to Christ and continuing to be an obedient servant of the Lord retired? No. Unfortunately, far too often we see both happen at once. I'm retired. D.L. Moody about this text and this staggering response of Moses here said this, Moses spent 40 years in Pharaoh's court thinking he was somebody, his upbringing, in a very important palace. 40 years in the desert learning that he was a nobody, wandering as a shepherd in Midian, and 40 years showing what God can do with a somebody who found out he was a nobody. Let me just break this down for a little bit. Some of us think we're somebodies and some of us think we're nobodies, but what we need to discover in this text is that God can grab the heart of a somebody who knows he's a nobody. And that's where ministry flourishes. It's easy to think we're somebodies. A somebody thinks they're owed stuff, like retirement. I've heard this before. I put in my time. We, we often call on, on empty nesters. Would you please serve in our children's ministry? Because something really weird's happening here, and God just keeps bringing us young children, and it's starting to freak us out. We praise God for it, but like they're, they're literally starting to outnumber us. The ratios are insane. And so we're just praying, Lord, don't bring a Lord of the Flies type moment here where they just sort of take over, like help us, right? And so, but what we hear often is, well, let the let young parents do it. That's what we did when we were their age. Let them do it. And in large part, they do. But unfortunately, their kids can't stay for a second service, so off they go, and they spend half their time or more in children's classrooms classroom serving. Praise God. But then they go. But we have all these empty nesters, and we have young adults who don't have, have the freedom of being able to serve in a service and attend a service. But unfortunately, sometimes we think we're somebodies. We say, yeah, I've done, I put in my time. Well, that's not the way the Christian faith operates, nor the Christian church. Is there a need? I'm retired to serve. Is there a need? I'm a young adult who's going to give up my personal time and just 
lay it down for where there is need among the body, and I will serve, and I will give it. Some of us think we're somebody's who are owed stuff. I think that was Moses for a good portion of his life. Somebody, some of us, like who are nobodies or feel like we're nobodies and think we've got nothing to offer. The reverse can be true. Look at all these young people, these go-getters, right? It's a young person's world out there. They're just, they've got energy and they've got passion. And what's my place? Where, where is an opportunity for me? I should just let them do it. I, who am I? I'm a nobody. To our detriment, we can have that view as well. I had an email this week. I get these often young man saying, Matt, would you mentor me? Would you disciple me? Or can you, you name somebody else who would be willing to? I'm looking for an older believer who can invest in my life. And I wrote him back, I can think of a few. I can think of a few who hold the Bible high, who are in the Word, who are men and women of prayer, who lay their lives down, who are just jumping at the chance to serve where there's a need. I can think of a few. Unfortunately, a lot of us either think we're somebodies or we think we're nobodies, and so we don't actually say, hey, there's probably someone more of an infant in the faith than me, or there's somebody younger than me, and I can come along and invest in them. I have far more people coming to me and saying, is there somebody older who would invest in my life and point me to Jesus? Somebody who's done the marriage thing for a long season and knows what it's like when that sucks but has persevered? Is there somebody who's been a mom or been a dad a lot of years ago with young kids who can tell me it gets less insane? (laughs) Is there somebody who has a, a faith that stood the test of time for decades that would just point me to the truths of Scripture when I'm wavering? And unfortunately, I have far more young people saying, show me somebody than people who say, my life is to be poured out and I have something to give. The person who says, I'm a somebody who's come to see that I'm a nobody. Use me how you will. Friends, the church is built upon that. I say this over and over and over again. I praise God that we're multi-generational. I praise him for that. It's one of the most beautiful mosaics that God is building at Central here and has for a long time. But it's to our detriment if we don't utilize the generations in a way that builds the church, which is in those who've walked with Jesus for a longer time, investing in those who have walked with Jesus a shorter time. You might be a 30-year-old and 20 20 years in in passionate Christianity. There's somebody who's four years in. You might be an 80-year-old who's 60, 70 years in, and you need to mentor that person who's only 50 years in and doesn't know what faith is about. I don't know. (laughs) Right? There's, just, there's just a place to turn and invest. The church needs the wisdom and faithfulness of mature believers. Moses is at 80 got it, and he went on to be faithful from 80 to 120. I don't expect all of us will live to 120, but what I know is that Moses used the back third of his life more faithfully than he had the first two-thirds. Are you willing to do the same? How are you going to use the back third? Now, that's just intro. That's just what I would consider light intro. Now let's get into the plagues, right? (laughs) Um, I'm going to confess right now, um, we were going to spend some time on this hardened heart of Pharaoh. We see in a couple places that, that, that God hardened his heart and was going to harden his heart. Huh? 
We also see that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So which is it? Well, um, I didn't want to spend like the last 10 minutes of this going there. A lot of the statements about Pharaoh's hard heart bleed into our text next week. So we're just going to hunker down on that next week. So that's a teaser. Come on back. We're going to talk about this hard heart of Pharaoh and what all is going on and God hardening and him hardening his own heart. But let's begin to delve into these plagues in this third point. Satan's power is real, destructive, and subordinate. Ten plagues are coming. Blood, frogs, gnats, flies, disease, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and then finally, death. Um, It's said that um, really what's ultimately going on here in these signs and wonders in Egypt is God waging battle against the false gods of Egypt. These have been categorized into three different categories. The, The water gods, the land gods, and the gods of the sky. And that's why these ten plagues touch on all of those. Now, I'm using the word plagues. You probably have um, Bible headings that say plagues, but nowhere in the text of Scripture does, are they called plagues. They're called miraculous signs and wonders. I mean, I wouldn't wish them upon my enemies, but God is inflicting these miraculous signs and wonders upon His. What do we do with that? Well, first and foremost, we need to understand that this is a cosmic battle. This isn't simply Moses against Pharaoh. This is against God, God against the false gods of Egypt. So when um, Aaron stripes, strike, uh, throws down his staff and it turns into a serpent, what we see happen is Mo, uh, um, Pharaoh calls, summons his wise men and, and sorcerers, the magicians. Another word for magicians here in the original is priests. The priests of these false gods and deities who would lead people into this worship. These wise men and these sorcerers, they were magicians. Of what kind, we need to ask. Perhaps they were magicians like modern-day magicians, David Copperfield, kind of sleight of hand, illusions. That doesn't seem to hold water. Perhaps they're snake charmers. Well, that helps us out in this first instance where, yes, they could um, kind of make a snake um, limp, and then they could throw it on the ground, and boom, it would kind of kind of come back, and maybe that would work in the first, but it doesn't make any sense for the following plagues. And so what it makes the most sense to understand here is that Pharaoh's priests performed their wonders by the power of Satan. When the Bible speaks of secret arts and sorcery, it's referring to demonic spells and incantations. That's why I say Satan's power is real and destructive. Look what happens. Aaron throws down the staff and it turns into a serpent. And it says in verse 11 that, um, that they cast down their staffs and they became serpents. A very real copying. Secondly, by the hand of Aaron and Moses, God um, turns the Nile into blood. And in verse 22, we see the magicians did the same thing by their secret arts. Then in chapter 8, they they produce frogs from everywhere. And God allows frogs to just spill up all over the land. And it says in chapter 8, verse 7, But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. And because of this, because of these magicians, these priests that Pharaoh has gathered, and they keep replicating these miraculous signs that God is doing, Pharaoh's heart remains hardened. He says, oh, there's an answer to this. 
we can do the same. And he, he, he doesn't see that he should be recognizing God's hand in this. But this is what God is doing in these first plagues. He's waging war on the false gods of Egypt. Look at the Nile, the Nile into blood. For Egyptians, the Nile meant everything to Egyptians. Their mode of transportation, their source of nourishment, it was even their standard of measurement, and it was their object of worship. It could be that Pharaoh was going down to the Nile to bathe that morning, like the scenario with his daughter earlier where she comes across Moses in a basket. It doesn't tell us. It could also be that he's going to pay honor to the gods as well. Perhaps he was going there to bless Hapi, H-A-P-I, the god of the flood. Perhaps he was going there to worship Knum, the guardian of the Nile. Or perhaps Osiris, a fertility god connected with the life that birthed from the Nile. Or maybe he was going there to sing an ancient Egyptian hymn, Hail to thee, O Nile, that issues from the earth and comes to keep Egypt alive. In all likelihood, Pharaoh went down to worship the gods of the Nile that morning. And when God turned the river into blood, it was to totally humiliate these gods and the belief system of the Egyptians. Same deal with the frogs. Frogs were so sacred to the Egyptians that they could not kill them, which is really unfortunate when we read that they were even climbing up people. But they're sacred to them, and they can't kill them. It's much like cows in India, in Hinduism. You can't hurt a cow, right? So it is with frogs in Egypt. In fact, they worshipped Heket, the goddess that controlled the frog population and assisted women in childbirth. She's pictured with the head of a frog. It's starting to sound really Shrek kind of like here at this point. But they worshipped her. And because Heket controlled the frog population and they worshipped her for it, this was a humiliating miraculous sign against them. See, ultimately, every form of false worship, this false worship of the Egyptians, and every form of false worship is Satan worship. I know that sounds extreme. We often don't talk in that language, but every form of false worship is Satan worship. And it always results in spiritual bondage, always. Always. 2 Thessalonians 2.9 says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Galatians 4.8 puts it this way to the church in Galatia. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. God is showing the Egyptians that these gods are false, but they enslave the Egyptians nonetheless. Satan uses it for those reasons. We downplay the differences of different faith streams, especially mainline Christianity these days. Um, Downplay the differences of different faith traditions and different faiths, and we say, you know what? Their faith seems to be really working for them, and my faith works for me. They, They seem like pretty nice people, pretty good people, pretty devout. I mean, what can you say? See, the problem in that is that there's, there's these deceptions and delusions that the Scriptures make clear, delusions that people think that they're okay, even while they're rejecting Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but by Him. See, it's a spiritual bondage to a belief that doesn't lead to life, no matter how pleasant it looks. 
It's a belief system that keeps them from turning to Jesus Christ. And part of the illusion and part of the deception that Satan uses is they actually look all right. Their faith looks just as vibrant as mine. I throw down a serpent, they throw down a serpent. It seems to work for them. Pharaoh was deceived that way. Listen, I need to say it again. Satan's power is real, destructive, but I also need to add this. It's also subordinate. See, this is, this is, I find this comical, actually. The best the priest can do is imitate what God did. Never create, only corrupt. Satan is always a counterfeiter, never an innovator. Their magic doesn't help their situation. It actually only makes things worse. Look at the Nile. So, Aaron puts a staff in the Nile and it turns the Nile to blood. Pharaoh looks to his magicians, his priests, and says, help me out here. And what do they do? Evidently, there were other pools of water somewhere, probably cisterns of water. The whole Nile's turned to blood. That's pretty precious water now at this point. And they turn water to blood. Ah, I probably would have gone the other way, like stop the Nile from having blood. But we actually needed that cistern, and you just showed that you could turn a cistern of water to blood. That's great. It says that they then brought frogs up from the Nile, and they were everywhere. And Pharaoh looks to his magicians, and they're like, we got this. And they produce more frogs. So what, I mean, how do you compound that? There's already frogs everywhere, and now there's more frogs everywhere. Like this, but this is what Satan does. He's always an imitator, always a counterfeiter, only corrupts, only counterfeits, Their magic doesn't help their situation. It only makes it worse. Let's focus on this staff for a moment. Why did God turn the staff into a serpent? Why did this whole thing get started that way? Well, Egyptians both had great fear of snakes and they worshiped snakes. I think I have a picture I could put on the screen if it's available. You might recognize King Tut. King Tutankhamun, uh, ne- thank you. I had it nailed earlier. Shoot. Tutankhamun's mask. It was his mummy mask. It was discovered in the early 1920s. And um, the reason that Pharaoh decided this is the emblem on his headdress was for this very reason, that, that Egyptians both had fear of the snakes and they worshipped these snakes. And so the idea for Pharaoh was that he would strike fear into his enemies like a cobra strike. Apophis was the serpent god who personified evil, and they feared him. Widget, um, the Egyptians worshipped the snake goddess Widget and built a temple in her honor, viewing her as their protector, and Pharaoh's believed she brought them to the throne and gave them her divine powers. On it goes. In fact, when a new pharaoh would come into power, he would actually quote this. O great one, O magician, O fiery snake, let there be terror of me like the terror of thee. Let there be fear of me like the fear of thee. Let there be awe of me like the awe of thee. Let me rule a leader of the living. Let me be powerful a leader of the spirits. And one commentator notes with these words, pharaoh offered his soul to the devil. And Aaron comes along seeing the snake on his headdress and takes his staff 
and throws it into the dust. He forces that emblem that he carries on his head to wiggle around on the dust. Well, it gets a little bit better for Pharaoh because his magicians can throw down their staffs and they all become uh, serpents as well. But do you read what happens next? Aaron's staff swallows up their staffs. Aaron's staff swallows up their staffs. Do you see the picture of what these plagues are bringing? There is one God over all things. And this language of swallowed up, let's carry it for a moment because eventually Pharaoh's going to relent, even for a moment, and lets the Israelites go. But then he says, ah, he has a change of heart. And so he chases with his army after them and they go to cross the Red Sea. And what happens? They're swallowed up. And Satan actually opposed Jesus from the beginning like Pharaoh opposed God. When he was born, Herod sent soldiers to kill him. He sent demons to torment him and even tempted Jesus himself in the wilderness. He used religious leaders to accuse him and those disguised as friends to betray him. Then God allowed Satan to put Jesus to death, but what Satan thought was his greatest triumph turned out to be his gravest mistake. Jesus disarmed Satan's authorities and made a public spectacle of him, triumphing over him through the cross. And as 1 Corinthians 15 says, death is swallowed up in victory. Death is swallowed up. This picture that God is showing the Egyptians of his serpent swallowing up their serpents, of the sea swallowing up his army, and of Jesus on the cross and through the resurrection swallowing up death in victory. Remember this, church, when you're tempted and in trying circumstances. Satan's power is real, yes, but it's not absolute. Subordinate. It's a subordinate power. His power over sin was stripped at the cross. His power over death was swallowed up by the resurrection. Ephesians 6 picks up on this and says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We would be ignorant to ignore that all of this is happening. But we would also be wildly lost if we didn't recognize that in the midst of temptation, in the midst of difficulty, we can cling to Jesus for he swallows up death and victory. For he's subordinate power. Satan is a subordinate power. So cling to Jesus who swallowed up sin and death in victory. Let's pray together. Let's spend a few minutes in response. Lord Jesus, thank you for the cross of Christ. Our sins paid. Thank you for the empty tomb. Death defeated. Thank you that this cosmic battle is not left up to question, but has, Satan has received decisive blows. And Jesus, when you return again, all things will be made right. And Satan's ultimate destruction will come about. Father, I, I pray just really practically for our church. God, would you make us a people who proclaim the gospel? Help us in our fear. 
Help us in our self-doubt to rely on you, but help us to go out into Chilliwack and Agassiz and the ends of the earth proclaiming this good news. Father, also I pray that the gift of the generations you would give to us would be woven into such a beautiful mosaic of the strong helping the weak, of our elders feeding into the young, Lord, of the many gifts we have collectively being used for the good of your church and the good of this place. God, we respond in praise. You've saved us. You rescue us. We can turn to you in our need. I praise you for that truth. In Jesus' name, amen.